I'm Catherine Kingsley. And I'm Catherine Stone. And this is Contemplating Culture, a missionary walk through a secular age. Together we journey through A Secular Age by Charles Taylor, a book looking at the history and philosophy of how the world got where it is, and the impacts of our contemporary culture for us today as missionaries. And we're inviting you to join the conversation. Welcome back to another week of Contemplating Culture. Are we up to week session 10? Yeah, number 10. And I thought I might just like start with a little recap of kind of where we are, just situate ourselves. So you might be wondering how far have we made it through the book? So this week, we've actually got a lot to cover this week. It's only kind of five pages, pages 66 to 70, but it's a huge amount of content. So that's kind of where we are. Not even 100 pages in yet. But it just gives you an idea of, I guess, how dense it is that we're delving into and how much kind of each idea holds. And that's, I think, why I'm enjoying this process so much, you know, like having the time to kind of tease out little elements rather than just like reading it through as content kind of thing. So I don't know how you're finding it, but I'm definitely enjoying that slower pace of being able to actually spend some time getting into it. Hey, that means this is one of those podcasts that's going to keep going for years at this rate. You'll uh, <laughs> not have to find a new podcast for a while. We'll see how we go. I don't know what will happen after we make it through. We'll, we'll have to find out. And I've been uh, had some people recently just telling me that they've been listening and they've been really enjoying it. Um, but I had one person recently say, ah, it's like a really scary thing that you're doing. Like I'm scared for you because it's, opening up a space that's I guess people aren't really entering into or talking about so just like full disclosure like we have we don't have all the answers (laughs) we're not claiming to and we're probably wrong about lots of stuff or some of our ideas probably aren't fully on track but I guess yeah we just want to encourage everyone I guess to have the courage to kind of just step into the conversation rather than doing the things society is really good which is like blocking it out, putting it in the too hard basket because, I don't know, I just think it's really important. Absolutely. I get terrified that somebody's going to go through and go, oh, there's a heresy there. (laughs) Oh, my goodness, I'm offended by that. (laughs) Yeah, I reckon this sort of conversation is really scary on lots of levels, just between ourselves as Christians, let alone then opening it up to my terror of what if my atheist friends or family members listen to this, how are they going to, how are they going to hear it? Yeah. We just want to, I don't know, to be a safe space to listen and explore and exploring is always a bit tricky, (laughs) kind of going outside the things that you know for sure. Absolutely. So today, talking about things that we don't know for sure, (laughs) we're entering into what I've titled The Anxiety of Death. Definitely haven't been there yet. (laughs) So Charles Taylor talks about a twofold movement of a stance towards death. So he says kind of when you have the pagan society and the idea of Hades. Hades, what's that? Well, I guess different people might have different ideas of what it is, but this is kind of the gen- a very general um, understanding of it being an afterlife, but kind of like a lower, a lower form to the life up here. And so the anxiety around death in this kind of time is that once people have died, they're going to kind of be envious of the people still living. They're going to be resentful. And so you want to make sure you give them a really good send off so they don't come back and haunt you. So kind of when you reach the pit of death, 
you're not so much scared about going in as you are scared of what's coming back out. I guess that's sort of where we come to be praying for eternal rest, right? That's it, yeah. Like, stay there. Rest in peace, don't come back. (laughs) That's it. So that's even, yeah, a Christianizing of this kind of very, even before pre-Christian kind of idea that there could be unsettled souls in in that realm of Hades. And it was very much considered that death was the natural order of things. So that's why you, you weren't really afraid of it so much as you you just didn't want to be <laughs> haunted by the people that had, had passed on there. But then there's a movement um, with Christianity of kind of considering the eschatological. So that's kind of the things beyond the here and now, the, the end, the ultimate kind of things. And living beyond, as we've been talking about, beyond the human flourishing of the here and now. It's the idea that there will be a point that our life will be weighed and measured. And this is first and foremost in the movement through history around a final judgment, that there'll be a final judgment when humanity will be weighed. And, you know, this parts of humanity will be found wanting and this part will kind of receive the fullness of life. Um, So there's this kind of movement. Heaven and hell, essentially, we're talking about. That's it. And then from here, Taylor says there's a secondary movement. So these kind of things, the pagan and the Christian ideas of anxiety around death, you know, like Christians afraid about going into the pit of death because, you know, like, am I going to be enough once I reach that point? Am I going to hell, basically? Exactly. Versus the pagan idea of I'm scared of what's coming out from the dead. You know, that whole fear we then start to move over time to what he calls an individuation or an individualization of of death that it's no longer just us and we need to be protected from the undead or we need to make sure that we're saving souls to make it to heaven that kind of general the body thing but now it's it's more and more about me and death is suddenly you know not So far away, it's now more immediate. The impact of death is now more immediate to me. He says that there's a few things that kind of influence this. So one of them, I guess, in the realm of the church in particular, there's the clerical elite who are wanting to increase religious devotion. And he gives an example. He says the 1215 Lateran Council recommended or brought in auricular confession. So Kat, what's that? That's like verbal confession. Like... You're talking basically what we would think of when we think of confession, like talking one-on-one. That's the probably the first time you get a church document talking about how confession would happen, that I would go to a priest, I would confess verbally and so to someone who hears me. It's personal. So what would it have been like before that? Well, back particularly pre-Dark Ages, confession is a quite a public thing and it's a much rarer thing so what you get is this sense in the very early church of that there is no forgiveness for serious sins and that evolves into okay for everything but the most serious there's like a chance of a second baptism in tears if you like you know you have a second chance which then evolves into this particularly difficult stage in the life of the church where if I do some kind of serious sin, like say I murder my brother, if that's a private thing, then I can confess privately to the bishop, but he's going to give me a very public penance, like 
three years in the order of penitence, during which time I have to pray and fast. I'm barred from receiving communion. I stand outside the church while everyone else is going into mass, asking for their prayers. Like it's quite a humbling reality. It involves the whole church in that everyone is supposed to be praying for me Mm -hmm. and with me. And sometimes it's on people's recommendation that the bishop might lift that penance early and reconcile me to the life of the church if i my sin is a public sin say i'm caught committing adultery like a woman in john 8 um and everybody knows it then i actually have to make my confession publicly not just privately before the bishop who then will give me x amount of days or years or whatever it is in the order of penitence as my penance so this is I mean, it's a verbal confession, but it's a very different reality to the one-on-one thing that we now know. That one-on-one thing comes out of the Irish monks who bring it across into Europe, basically during the Dark Ages when Europe needs re-evangelization. And that's where my grasp on church history starts to get a bit hazy. I'm assuming 1215 Lateran Council is maybe the first church document that actually says, yeah, this is a norm. Mm. that we're recommending or more than recommending that's that's interesting because that's um only in the second half over the last two thousand years so in terms of us kind of considering that the church is always going through developments and always going through i think we can forget that we kind of think that it's like this package deal now or something but you know it's just been through all these kind of movements and so the other thing that comes out in a similar period of time is the mendicant orders. So the orders that start going around preaching. And so there's this internal within the church, an internal kind of army crusade of of going out and preaching, preaching judgment, you know, preaching like you need to be repenting from sin and changing your life around because you will meet judgment. And who are you going to be when you meet that judgment? So it becomes a very personal thing. And Taylor says actually the reason that this was able to take so much hold was because there was a secondary movement kind of happening, which we've been talking about in the last few weeks in the world, that movement from the we to the I, that as people started to move into, out of the villages, their home community into a town, they're now, you know, out on their own, they're fending for themselves, they're looking at their own personal destiny for the first time kind of thing. And so suddenly they're, they're building up lives of riches They've got to make a lot of decisions for themselves that um, society wasn't necessarily making for them as it had been. So now, well, actually now I am making a lot of personal choices and it's more important that I consider the eternal consequence of those choices. So he says these two things kind of work together. So we've got the movement from uh, pagan anxiety around death to Christian and from the whole general body of humanity to the very personal individual. And he says that there's a few things that come with that, like the, the consequences of that. And he says one of them is that we, we start moving from things that affect, I guess, the body more widely in terms of like anger or murder or violence, disunity, you know, things that are affecting the body to the things that are, that are personal. So we move to a greater focus on, say, sexual purity or things like that, that No one might even know about what's happening, you know, like in my sexual life out in the body, but it's now more important. Um, So that movement of just like even what, where our concern on sin is, that kind Mm. of thing starts to shift with this. Mm. And then another thing that he says is that we start to see a shift that it becomes increasingly important, the, the role of intercession. 
And we see that this kind of eventually takes hold in the movement of indulgences and the way that they take root. And this is like, I think the first time I'm actually going to read from the book because it's just, (laughs) it's a very, um, just here's a little sound of what the book sounds like. Quite a, quite a heavy little number. (laughs) But he just, I don't know. I think it just gives you an insight into kind of what he's talking about. So he's talking about this movement of indulgences and he says, you know, like we've kind of reached a point where we've kind of created almost a currency of indulgences. So he calls that like a coin of this quasi time, such and such an act earned one year and 40 days remission for your mother in purgatory, that kind of idea. That this got out of hand, went beyond the bounds of any sane theology or Christian practice, and in the end set fire to the whole structure of the medieval church is well known. The image we have in the light of the ultimate revolt is of a rich, powerful and greedy hierarchy, battening on the ignorance and fears of the laity to drain vast sums of money towards the purposes of Rome, principally maintaining and expanding the papal state and building magnificent Renaissance churches. There is much truth in this view, but it also masks the movement in the other direction. How much was the hierarchy responding to, in a sense following, a popular piety which demanded a means of acting in solidarity in the face of death. Then he goes on to say, Purgatory became the focal point for a very large part of Christian practice in the late medieval church. It channeled an immense charge of anxiety towards intercessory prayer and acts, towards charitable donations to the poor or to chantries, which would pray for the soul of the departed. To the point where the big question of the early 16th century is, What happened to this immense energy, this charge of anxiety and hope, when the reformers tried to abolish the whole system, root and branch? Did people react with a visceral refusal of this destructive act? Or did they follow the reformers in channeling that energy into a new direction, a new register? This was undoubtedly crucial for the fate of the Reformation in many places. Mm. And so one of the kind of outcomes I guess of what we see is what we were talking about last week that widening gap between those who are sticking to the church the clergy the way things have been and the new educated elite minority that are like actually there might be a better way so that's kind of one of in that period of time one of the consequences but I actually think that we're still dealing with the ripple effects of this like history is full of movements and then counter movements and so as we have this movement towards anxiety of death. I think now we've moved away from that to like an anxiety away from death kind of thing. Like that I encounter so many people that when I ask them, you know, like what do they believe about life after death or what do they think about it is probably what I ask and they say, I don't think about it. That it's kind of like a, a keep it to the side. That's a I don't even have the energy to deal with that. Like that's a problem for future me kind of thing. Mm. Death is a problem for future me. Whatever happens after death, that's a problem for future me. And I was thinking about, well, like all of that. And the question was there from Taylor, like what's happened to that anxiety? You know, like where has society placed its energy that was around death? And you said something really interesting before Kat that I think just really captured it. Well, yeah, it was in the context of indulgences and how does that energy come out now? And I was thinking of, oh, was it the third podcast we did or something where we were talking about the differing differing views of fullness of life? 
and how for the non-Christian, if life ends at death, then everything that counts as fullness of life has to happen now, which means that this whole indulgence saving for the life after death, that I've got to spend my money, spend my energy, making sure I end up in the right place or making sure my family end up in the right place has shifted largely to now that we live in a culture where I'm spending my energy making sure that I get every drop of life that is now before death. So we see it played out, I think, in a way. We're not saving souls for the future. We're not saving people from hell. We're saving now. Mm. And I think we see that played out in all sorts of ways that we have almost normalized and we bring into the way that we live in the church as well. So let's not just divorce this from ourselves. Definitely. But, you know, a big focus on physical and mental health and balance of life. You know, the, the worried well who are going to the doctor trying to sort out things, um, the immense amount of use of therapy, counseling, that kind of thing. Practices of like detox, all the different types of diets people go on in order to maximize their physical well-being. The practice of mindfulness. What is that if not saving now? That, you know, I am going to extract every drop of the now (laughs) in my life and not miss it. You know, all the worriedness about people getting lost in social media and and missing what's going on in life now or on the flip side, spending hours on social media because I'm going to miss what's going on in everyone's lives. Yes. Yes. Like they don't even all, they're not even all consistent with one another, but it all comes stems out of this need to save now, this need to stuff as many, do we have the image of boxes, fill as many boxes um, in the now, or even when we were talking about time, you know, every minute of my time needs to be used Mm. and used well. Yeah. It makes me think like the, the idea of indulgences isn't bad, you know, like it's, it's saving something that is good, you know, like eternal life is good. Being saved from eternal damnation is good. And it might even make us uncomfortable in this time to even talk about that, you know, it's kind of like, uh, makes people uncomfortable or something, but it's a good, but I think a similar thing, because as you're talking about saving now, remember a book that we read in our formation MGL called the practice of the presence of God. And it's, I was thinking it's, it's like the same thing. So I think what you're talking about is maybe the indulgences of today, the ways that we use our energy and our resources to save now. It's not a bad thing. Like just to say like saving now is not a bad thing, but it, it needs to be held in tension with the eschatological a and b i think it also needs to be checked against anxiety because the whole point of the practice of the presence of god is to rest yeah and the whole perspective is grounded in where i probably come back to every week which is in that lived relationship with god which is the key That's what we were made for. That's the fullness of life we're heading towards after death. We start it now that 
Like if you like, the practice of the presence of God is the antithesis of fear of hell because I'm wanting to save people for that relationship. I'm wanting to give people what I believe is the fullness of life, which is that union with God that we're all destined for. That I'm not, yes, I'm trying to save them from hell because I think my belief is that hell is not union with God, which is not what we're made for. But my whole emphasis in what I'm doing is it's better to have life now, to have that relationship with God now. Otherwise, let's just go evangelize in nursing homes and palliative care. Like, <laughs> why are we bothering doing youth ministry? We could just focus on getting people before they die and make sure they don't go to hell. But I believe that if you could spend your whole life in relationship with God, that's the best possible outcome for every human person. So let's start evangelizing the moment that, you know, kids are able to talk and start to grasp the idea of God. Let's go into schools. Let's try and reach out to every age and stage of life with the news that God is love and that your life has a meaning and a purpose beyond the now. And it's hard because I think I talked about there's there's a whole category of people that, that don't talk about death, don't like to talk about death, don't like to think about it. There's actually another kind of, I guess, couple of classes or groups of society that do think about death. Like I think there's one, as soon as it comes up, it's almost transformed into a sarcastic kind of brush it away kind of thing of like, ah, uh, see you in hell kind of thing, you know, like. The, the afterlife is inconsequential kind of thing. And then the second one, like far more serious, is I think people, when they st- stop seeing that purpose for their now, whether it be, you know, in, in a chronic pain situation or a depression situation, or even when we're looking at the really young, heavily disabled, when we start to look at those kind of categories, we then look at death in, in a different light. And society definitely looks at death in a different light that there is well maybe you know like what's the point and if now is supposed to be there's this whole idea of what fullness of life looks like and it has to be lived now and if I or that person can't or doesn't have the capacity for that which I judge as fullness of life human dignity whatever it is that I'm judging is not present then you get the tragedy of suicide, which I think, you know, has, if you want to trace Taylor's um, historical thing, was probably in the past more an issue because you have this unrestful dead. So, you know, a suicide is more likely to come back and haunt you because they didn't end life well. Also, it was believed that if you commit suicide, you're automatically going to hell because you're denying life. So this is this tragic situation where the person that you love hasn't just left you and isn't like just likely to haunt you, but you're never going to see this person again. They can't even be buried in a church cemetery. They're like, they're lost forever. It's this mm. huge tragedy. To now where probably more understood what's going on there, the church mm. is certainly much more compassionate and measured in how we talk about it and understand it and theologize about it but it's institutionalized in euthanasia 
that let's be real this is what euthanasia is it's an allowing of suicide where in circumstances where society now sees that you're not living or able to live fullness of life therefore we'll let you and help you commit suicide because death seems to be just an end if there's nothing after death if I just dissolve that's preferable to suffering and feeling like I have no dignity or I'm unable to live the quality of life or fullness of life that I believe I'm made for and that's suicide as well it's an end to this pain of right now an escape from this um it doesn't really have a, a place I guess for for what's after that yeah and it's like totally understandable in the circumstances, but it very much comes out of a particular seeing of death as just an end. Like that whole idea of eternal rest maybe still sits there that like I'll either dissolve and not be and not being means I don't suffer or, you know, I do go to this place of the dead where I just rest eternal sleep or something like that feels like a good option as well. Or even, let's go there, reincarnation. It's so got to be better to come back as a cockroach than to suffer what I'm suffering right now. At least, you know, I can go through and start the understand reincarnation. <laughs> but my understanding is that you keep cycling around until you hit mm-hmm. nirvana. Yep. So if this isn't the life that I'm going to do it in, might as well get on to my next, next one. one. I yeah. don't know. Actually, I have no idea what Hindus would say about suicide, but I'm assuming that, you know, it probably means you get a pretty bad reincarnation on the next round. But, yeah. Mm. So where where's the hope then, Kat, in, this, in all of this? Well, I guess you've got to come back to the Christian perspective, don't you? Um, that, that fullness of life is found beyond the grave. From a missionary perspective, that the hope is in relationship with God in the mercy of God. I think over the ages we have grown as a church and changed maybe the motivation of our evangelization. And I wouldn't say it's completely changed because I have recently heard very influential speakers talking about one of the reasons we would evangelize is to save people from hell. I was a bit disappointed by that. I would say... Well, yes, but that's like not even secondary. That'd be like tertiary or something in my lot of motivations. That so what would be your higher motivations for evangelizing? Relationship with God. It's better now um, than later. And I think like if that's what we're made for, if that is fullness of life, if that's what we're moving towards after death, why would you want to wait until death? to experience that personally my relationship with God is what makes sense of my life now it's what gives dignity to my suffering it's what makes me push on in the face of life feeling blur or whatever it's why I teach primary school children about Jesus and want every person I know to know God because that's their destiny that is fullness of life and it can start now we'll only receive the uttermost fullness of it after death but we do start now and so to a certain extent yes let's save now for people Mm. let's give them the key to life 
as soon as we can in their lives. Awesome. You said something just there. I almost didn't hear the whole rest of what you said because I was just still thinking about it. You said like your relationship with God brings, helps you find the dignity in suffering. I could just chew on that for a week. (laughs) Yeah. So thank you. This is such a rich conversation and I know that there's so much more that we could say and I think death is something that everyone has a really personal experience with or understanding of. But I guess the the hope for today is that we we actually do not that we have to obsess about it, but that it's it's healthy to hold what's beyond this life intention with with our living of this life. And so maybe a couple of reflection questions for this week would be firstly that one I love I love that of just allowing God to speak some dignity into an area of suffering in your life uh, or life of a loved one this week. The next one would I say would be have have a, a moment, a time where you allow yourself to to think about after this life. After this life, what what does that look like? What are my hopes for that? And how does that impinge upon my living of the now? And I think thirdly, maybe just to identify some of those indulgences that the world is feeding us to save now and maybe some of the ways that they've been distorted in our life where rather than causing us rest and peace and fullness, they're actually causing us anxiety. How are you doing, Kat? Well, I just had one more thought, Mm -hmm. if you like. It was around the image of God that we're living out of. Like this idea of a God who is ultimately judge, who's going to send us to heaven or hell, which I think we've moved on from largely, but maybe that's the caricature that people who laugh about whether they're going to go to heaven or hell, that they're rejecting, as opposed to a God who is all-powerful and all-loving and ultimately has each of our salvation as his first priority and so a sense of being able to do my best to share the gift of relationship with that God with others and be passionate about them having that but ultimately being able to relinquish not only theirs but my own salvation into his hands knowing that this is the God who made me and his deepest desire is that I share eternity with him and he can make that happen. He's all powerful. That doesn't mean I go around sinning and, you know, making it hard work for him or something. But that I can I can relax to a certain extent and not take on myself the burden of saving the world. Or of even saving myself. That there's a deep hope that just comes out of knowing him. Mm. And maybe maybe that's a good spot to end today of just um a final invitation to just rest in the savior amen this has been contemplating culture a podcast produced by the missionaries of god's love sisters for more information from today's episode be sure to check out the show notes we pray that today has blessed you and most importantly we invite you to continue the conversation mm-hmm.